It's Monday, December 4th, 2017, and you're listening to episode 467 of Fear the Boot, a show about tabletop role-playing games and a little bit more. Running time for this episode is 52 minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is Brodor. This is Wayne. My name's Chad. And we've been losing IQ points and alcohol and Eurotrip clips. I apologize to everyone, both at the table and at home. Can I just say, and, and you at home listening or in your office listening or in the shit you're listening, don't get to see this, but nothing makes me moist like the unamused face of <laughs> I've never, I've never seen someone look so unhappy and so superior at the same time. It's amazing. I think it's something he has to, he has to work at. <laughs> no. It's like a facade. Oh, no. This is nothing. I disagree. You, do, no, no. you, you try sitting there while he's running a game and everyone at the table is in their phones now mm. that is an unabused look yeah oh, that's i i have to say i sir i commend you i love it i have the patience of a hindu cow i'm just <laughs> waiting for you guys to get to work the patience now of wait, a hindu cow yeah. is from fight club there's a there's a cow milking thing that i'll save for a negative episode but i love fight club yeah Great. Love the book. Love the movie. The book was amazing. Yep. Done blowed my mind. <laughs> All right. So with the content of this episode, I want to stress something up front, which is we're going to be talking about the most recent episode of the Skies of Glass actual play, which as of this posting is episode 13. So if you are following the actual play and have not listened to episode 13, then Stop this recording here and go listen to that first and then come back to this. Now, if you're not listening, that's five hours. So block out of time. No, it's three and a half, but it is a long time. But go and take care of that first because of the fact that there's going to be spoilers about that and what we're talking about. Now, if you're not following the actual play and you're wondering, am I going to get anything out of this episode? The answer is yes. We're using the actual play as a point of reference, but we are not going to make the show specifically and solely about the actual play. All right. So with there's your opportunity to hit pause or hit stop and jump off now. So let's go ahead and roll into it. Brodor, now you can go ahead and give the spoiler that I had to have. Well, so Joe, Joe got a lot taken off his chest. Now. <laughs> it's, it's, a lot like, taken off his chest, yeah. out of his chest. No, it's not funny so it's like a big when, 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 it's, when it's appropriate and allowed, it's not amusing. <laughs> so, it's like butt stuff. <laughs> fun to joke about, but to actually go and... Eh, nah. yeah, if it's not a surprise, it's not fun. <laughs> All right, so I want to talk about what I took away from that game. Joe died. Yes. Brodor's character, Joe, the ship captain, the glue that held the entire crew together, died. Well, and go back and listen to it, because... By Lee's God. You can can hear hear both of Dan's D12 hit location dice clap against the table, and be like, ho, ho, ho! Because they both land gunk torso. I was right. like, yeah. <laughs> so let me give a setup here for anyone who's not been following the AP, so you understand the story that we're telling. You're missing out. Yeah, you're missing out. But that's something you need to work out on your own. Fear the boots not here for you in those kinds of moments. <laughs> the the group consists of several characters that are at various levels of immersion within an ugly world where a lot of questionable things have to be done to survive. And if you try to play the shiny knight good guy, it is possible, but the world is against you. It's very frontiersy. It's very survivalist. There do come times where you have to make the hard choices about things like, you know, we've got two people and can only save one. And it's not as if the entire game is bleak. This is something that Chad and I have, debated people on for years it's actually not about hopelessness it's about hope it is about hope it is about where the world was destroyed and then the amount of time passed and people survived humanity survived and now humanity is at a point to where it doesn't have to struggle to survive anymore but it can actually start fighting each other and i think that's one thing people miss is there's this old axiom or aphorism that 
courage doesn't exist without fear, right? If you're, if you're afraid of nothing, you're not courageous. Mm-hmm. Courage is when you are afraid of something but face it anyway. And in the same way, Skies of Glass, in order to be a game about hope and about brightness, has to have darkness to it. Because if there is no darkness, if there is no time where it is difficult to be hopeful, where it's difficult to be the good guy, where making the morally right choice means sacrificing something personally, then really what moral statement have you made about yourself? And that's a nuance I think a lot of people, when I do the elevator pitch on the game, miss. They say, well, this game sounds so bleak and so depressing. No, but- see, like, 40K is dark. I mean, it's supposed to be. It, it is that way by design. It is grimdark. It is a race to the bottom of dark. It is what can be darker than darkness, and the themes are dark, and everything is dark, and it's just so hopeless. And it, it wants to be that, tries to be that. It's very successful at being that. Skies of Glass has a lot of darkness in it. It has an extreme amount of just bad, evil darkness in it. But the purpose of the darkness in the story thematically is to highlight the light, the goodness, the purity, and the the heroicism that people can achieve and the good things they can do. And once it's highlighted, you shoot it with a shotgun. Apparently. (laughs) So... There's something that... Spoilers, Joe died. Yes, spoilers, (laughs) Joe died. All right. So what I want to talk about here that I think applies to every role-playing game, even if you're not interested in the Skies of Glass actual play, and this is more observation than advice. I don't know there's any advice I can give because, like friendship, this isn't the kind of thing that you can engineer. And that is the serendipity of the role-playing game. All right, And, and what I'm referring to here is when you tell these stories, there are these unplanned moments. There are these unplanned events where everything just comes together in a really unexpected and powerful and poignant and thematically deep and whatever, insert English teacher terms Hmm. here, way that you only get, I think, by virtue of telling enough stories with sufficiently invested parties it's the 10,000 monkeys principle, right? You, you tell enough good stories, and eventually these moments are going to come up. And so within the party, what we have is these people that are at varying degrees deep into the darkness of the world. So you have someone like Chad's character, Lee, who has seen the darkness and has become very pragmatic about it. And I mean morally or philosophically pragmatic, that he's kind of given up on deontological morality, when you have a code of ethics that goes above all. It's irrelevant to situation. This is just what you do. Playing on honor, what the Bible says. These are all deontological moralities. And Lee's gone in a different direction, where he's been so deep in it, there's what has to be done, and sometimes that might mean watching a tragedy unfold without getting involved to make it to the next point. But the interesting thing about Lee Mm. is that he's a voyeurist because Lee will Mm. argue both sides and play devil's advocate. The thing about he's a lawyer because, but Lee won't choose, right? Lee won't say this is the right thing to do. This is the wrong thing to do. All Lee will do is he will, he'll plan moves ahead and say, well, if you move your knight here, then these things yeah. could happen. Yeah. If you move the queen there, then these things could happen. He, but Lee never says, this is the right move. And he can't. There's a quirk of his personality where he can't and he won't. Like, there was a, a point in the game where Joe is was the leader, the captain of the ship, and it, and something happened and a decision had to be made. And Lee was really the only person who was in the right place at the right time with all the information to make a decision. And he had his whole thing where the, all the chess moves were mapped out and he's five steps ahead of everybody. He could not make the decision. Or I would say he would not. He refuses to. So then you have Eric Osley's character, a friend of ours over from the gamer's table, Thank you for finally giving my capital letter uh, (laughs) podcast. And he's playing a guy who, as a youth, was a member of probably the worst of the worst of the bad people in the world. 
but the literal boogeyman. Yes, and has has been redeemed from that to an extent. Mm-hmm. He got pulled out of that world and got gentrified, but in a good way. I, I don't mean that in the negative political sense. He got brought into society in a yep. good way and is trying to get past that, but has mixed ability doing that. And sometimes the monster got cleaned up, but there's still a monster behind yeah, those he, eyes. He's still a monster at times. Then you have Philip, who of the three I've described so far, is probably the closest thing to a genuine D and D style good guy, where he is. No, he's not. Well, <laughs> he's an asshole. <laughs> let's put last game aside for a moment. <laughs> but if we look at the general arc of his character, while he is a merchantman and he's mm-hmm. trying to get a good deal. And that may mean at times doing some things are a little bit morally questionable. Overall, he is a man of compassion. He is a man of heart. He is a man who doesn't take any pleasure, nor even take, I think, some kind of moral neutrality in hurting people. He tries to be as pragmatic as Lee does, and Mm -hmm. he fails. He has buttons that keep getting pressed, and... When they happen, he can't stand there and do nothing. Lee, he reacts. Lee is more pragmatic because he's seen too much. Philip mm-hmm. hasn't been broken. Lee's been broken. Right. Now, I'm only talking about the player characters here. I'm not going to get into the NPCs because we'd be here all night. But with among the player characters then, that left Brodor's character, Joe, who was the captain of the ship, who was the one true good guy within the group. He was the one person who, I mean, yes, every human being has their faults and flaws, but if we were to look within the relative scale of human behavior, he is the closest thing to a true good guy the party had. And I think the word that I would choose to describe Joe is that he was innocent of the world, that he had grown up in a winemaking town where things, at least at that point in history, were very simple you made the wine, you sold the wine, you know, his family existed as part of that. And then he goes off very, we'll call it a simple view of the world. I don't know if it's truly simple, but in a D and D game, he would be the paladin. If not the paladin, because I think paladins still yeah. understand the moral equation and have chosen to make a stand. If he's a paladin, he's like a level zero paladin, or he's a paladin acolyte or shield bearer. Like, I don't think he's gotten it yet. He definitely wasn't an armored paladin, that's for sure. (laughs) But (laughs) Yeah, because that would have actually saved you. But the point point being, though, that he goes out into the world under the wing of a guy who is far pops than NPC, who is far more grizzled, who's seen a lot more, and pops has stood out in the sun a little too long. And, yeah, pops a little baked in the head. Yeah. And as of the prologue, pops is gone. And the game, I will tell you right now, for anyone who's paying close attention, the entire game is a, is about the fallout from the prologue. If you listen to the prologue, you will see a foreshadowing of the entire plot of the game that is in there. Nothing that happened in there was by accident. And... Joe ends up taking over that merchanting business, gets a ship of his own, and he's very innocent of the world. He understands on paper that bad people exist, but he cannot really internalize it. He can't really wrap his head around the fact that this exists, that it's one of those things that you read about in the paper, but it never actually happens. Broder, is that about right? Yeah, it is. It, it reminds me of when we were right after my wife was shot and we were in the waiting room Re- outside. Real life event, by the way. Yeah. We're not talking about we're, the game. Broder's yeah. wife really was shot. We're in the uh, we're in the waiting room outside the ICU and we're all hanging out just waiting to get news about surgery. And one of my closest friends, his wife says to me, she's like, you know, you hear about these things on TV, but they don't happen to real people. Right. It's just not real. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of Joe's view of the world because he had been isolated. It's not the right word, but he had been blissfully ignorant of the realities of the world. And And, and you have to remember that we're all teenagers. Like we're all like 19 ish. The 20s. And the other characters, to some degree, I think all of them were doing it. We're continuing to shield him from this. Right. Trying to in make their sh- own way. Yeah. Like, Philip was trying to to shield Joe and to, to protect him from the evils of the world that he saw. 
Lee was trying to bring him up to the reality of the world while not just throttling with right. it. You didn't want me to get the bends. You wanted me to come up nice and yeah, slow right, right. that I would climatize. Yeah. yeah. So in the games that go from the starting point of the campaign to where we're at now, one of the recurring themes is Joe's innocence and also the fact that Joe has a lot of scorn or a lot of disappointment when the individual party members go against that innocence. When they do things that may or may not be necessary. I, I think that's debatable, and I, as the Game Master, obviously acknowledge it. You guys don't. But they do things that, to them, they seem like hard choices, but they're necessary choices to survive in this world. But they're ugly choices. They are ugly decisions that are hard to cope with. They're, they're, it's, it's like how they talk about the first time you kill a person, it changes you. And it's, it's those kinds of things, that once you do these things, you never totally come back from them. And part of the theme of this had been Joe maintaining that innocence, partially because other people were insulating him from the ugliness of the world, but then also his sort of scorn for the, or disappointment, maybe that's a better word, for the choices that these people were making. And then what happens is in the past two or three games, the darkness finally starts to get to him. And this first gets expressed when he finds out that the Rat Man is at least indirectly responsible for Pop's death. And because of his love for Pops, he kills him in what you could argue is either hot or cold blood. Because of the fact that the event's over. And the Rat Man, at least if you take him at his word, didn't want that death. But out of that anger, but still detached from the event, which is why I say I think you could take this as hot or cold blood, kills him. And that was a turning point for has Joe. Has him killed. Has him attacked. Well, at first, has him. No, no. Joe, pulled, Joe does the killing shot. Motomar fails. <laughs> yeah. He attempts to tell Motomar to do is to, to kill him. Motomar fails. At which, which got point, Motomar crippled. Yeah, crippled. Yeah. And then Joe kills him himself. Kills the rat, the rat man. man. As the rat man is trying to back away peaceably. Yeah. So not only does he make he makes the tough decision to have him killed then has to deal with the guilt of he's just sent his friend to be shot right and top it all off he has his first kill joe had killed other people both pre-game and in game i mean it wasn't the first time that joe had taken a life or the first right. time that joe even shot a man in the nugget but it was the first time that he had killed a man in a situation where he was, where his life was not threatened. Right. The first time that he had killed someone. It's like the previous, vengeance. it's like the previous conversation we had about Motomar's character. There is a difference with intent between kill and murder. Right. And this was his choice to murder. Yeah, absolutely true. This is where I, I want to start talking about the serendipity of games. And we're going to move this to what just happened because I, I think this comes up yeah. even bigger. But, we saw a lot of horrible things in the meantime, right? which helped continue this development. But if I was an English teacher, and I was using this game, th this is the novel my class is reading, and we were reading through this Man, novel. We, we read Watership Down, cheaper by the dozen. I'd rather read this. I know, we didn't even get like Rainbow Party or anything really <laughs> salacious. But Lady Chatlily's Lover. Lady Chatlily's <laughs> Yeah, well, that's even in this. Yeah, you, you, yeah. you get the cliff notes of that if if sky's glass ever does become a novel i'll see if i can get greg from thug notes to do, <laughs> to do the, the overview of lady chatterley's lover and that's going to be caucasianized and put in as motomar's understanding of the book but the the thing that that's going on here if i was an english teacher that i would point out is this represents a transition in joe's character that joe's character has changed that something has put him on a dark path and in many ways, I think Joe is the thematic focus or locus or anything that rhymes with us, hocus pocus, of this game because of the fact that he is the one thing that expresses more than anything else the hope and decency that stands against the darkness and does so largely untainted. Well, he did. Did. <laughs> and, and at that point, he begins down a dark path. 
And it was a really, really neat moment, even if we take it on its own. Now he just bleeds into the darkness. <laughs> and this is where I want to talk about the serendipity of games, because this is kind of the neat sort of moment that you can sit back and do armchair philosophizing about that just happened by pure coincidence of a group of people collaboratively telling a story. Right. And I don't want to, I don't want to get all douchey about it because <laughs> this is what I'm about to say. It's going to sound wicked douchey, but that moment, I mean, Joe did not lose his life, but that is the moment where the character of Joe died. Well, and I found yeah. it interesting because after Joe does, when he shot up, the rat man. Yeah. When he shoots the rat man, that moment, all that chain of events, the, manipulating mm. just basically not even manipulating just asking motomar to do yeah. it and because you know he joe can't do it himself but also if motomar fails yeah. joe has the opportunity of thinking those steps ahead and we talk about that yeah. in character right but that moment where joe not only did he murder someone out of vengeance but then he manipulated his friend mm. and almost got his friend killed so he could ensure his success. Yeah. That is so at that moment. What kind of horrible character would yeah. manipulate it, their friend to almost die? Right. <laughs> Not me. Yeah. yeah. In, that, in that moment, I, I recognized as a player that that moment was Joe finally succumbing because he just could not. So there was a fight the way. Well, so there was this reversal too, right? right? So we said that like Lee was trying to get Joe to slowly come up, acclimatize to the world not he did not want joe to become evil he just wanted joe not to be victimized by the world that was his whole thing cuz he loved well, joe well and i and and maybe maybe i am reading too much into it but i think on some level lee recognized that if joe did not acclimatize yeah. to the reality of the world that he would snap yeah and he if you notice after you shot the rat man now, there was no way I, Chad, or Lee could see where this path was going to go, basically taking two barrels to the chest and dying in a cave. Yeah. But, um, it was so cool. It was. It was. <laughs> but Lee saw Joe descending into darkness. And there were several times where Lee reached out to Joe to... It's just like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get this guy to understand the reality of the world, but it's, oh my God, he's gone too far. He's going over into the, yeah. the evilness of it. And he kept trying to bring Joe back. Right. But the, the, the crucial flaw of Lee yeah. is that Lee cannot speak in played language. No, nope, Lee cannot. just can't yeah. he's say. Too, he's too damn smart. Yeah. It, oh, it's so frustrating. Yeah, he is. He, like, he's <laughs> so really, really frustrating. I think the Lee, one character that could have brought you back. Is Casey yeah. and Casey simply never? It was an NPC for anyone's not yeah. listening. Casey's a nihilist, though. No, Casey's not a nihilist. Casey just he's psychologically defeated. Sure, he's not a nihilist. It's just more Our nihilist psychologically defeated. Yeah, he's, he's just he's. It's not that per se. He doesn't believe there's any meaning or any purpose or any hope. It's just he doesn't know anymore how to try. Right. When asked, he has, I'd like, I mean, it seems from the way you guys have reacted, pretty good commentary on things, but thematically Joe goes down a dark path and as kind of the heart and soul of, you know, the, the, the readers look into the world, right? He, he's the baseline of decency within the world. He's gone down a path from which there's probably no return. And so what ends up happening is this culminates in a confrontation, I guess it was about a week, two weeks later. It was an argument between Philip and Lee, and Joe was the pawn in their argument. Yeah. yeah. Wait a minute. Joe was the pawn between Philip and Lee? Yes. <laughs> yes, he was. That's a 14th. <laughs> and so what What ends up happening is there, there's a... I don't want to say he's a villain. There, there's a madman by the name of Koresh. Right. Who I did not name her as one of like, does that relate to David Koresh? And I kind of went that angle, but I didn't name the character. He was named by her. And yeah, until you, you know, mentioned that before when we were talking about, I think on Thursday, I thought you did. Yeah, no, Eric gave him the name Koresh. And I think it's spelled differently than David Koresh spelled his name. So in the most recent game, there's a conflict that occurs where. Motomar, who still has an injury from where he was shot by the rat man, but is heir apparent 
to a group of the worst of the worst of the worst raiders and bandits and ne'er-do-wells in the world, at least in that area. There yeah, are, the, the istiest. Yeah, <laughs> the, that, that is, at least in that area. There are actually people worse than them out there, but within that area, this, this is as bad as it gets. And he is being taken to be sort of inducted into this family because he, at least they believe, and he actually may be, a descendant of the ruling lineage or the ruling sort of clique of this group of bandits. And what's amazing about that particular group of bandits, about Ma Carver's gang, is they are as politically nuanced as St. Louis and all of the different factions and motivations inside the camp. It's really interesting to watch that sort of play out particularly uh, among replacement Ma Carver and Koresh Dude, himself. One of the things I have held to on this show since its start, and I hope has now after 12 and a half years or 11 and a half years or whatever it is, finally been demonstrated, is my strength as a game master is in the long game. And I do, and this is something that Chad really talks about, and he's 100% right. I don't like black hat bad guys. Mm. I like there to be, I mean, they might be evil. But everybody has a narrative in their head by which what they're doing makes sense. You know, they have some moral argument for what they're doing. And I'm not a relativist, personally, okay? I'm not a moral relativist. I absolutely do believe there is right and there is wrong. But if a bad guy is so monodimensional that they're just snidely whiplash, D&D, chaotic evil level evil, to me, it's just not my, that's not my thing. That's not my bag. If it works in your game, fine. I'm not here to judge. It's not my bag. No, we judge, but you know. <laughs> but what ended up happening is you guys find out about the politics going on in there, and they want to induct Modemar into this family, which because of the religious undertones and overtones that some of the individuals have, they insist on taking him to this cave to be baptized in what they consider sacred waters. And while they're there and baptizing him, the injury that he has to his hip seems to recover, and he is able to stand back up again. But there, something that's happened prior to this point is Wayne put into his character's background that he has a daughter that he doesn't know he has from basically his philandering while traveling up and down the Mississippi. And it just so happens that the, when, while they are stuck with this group of bandits, the bandits raid a farm where the mother of his daughter lived and she and her family are killed. And this little girl who's about three, which is Wayne's character's bastard daughter is the mm-hmm. only survivor. And so in the middle of all of this, no guns drawn, there's no violence unfolding. It's a perfectly, it, it's kooky as hell, mm-hmm. but it's perfectly peaceable on the way there. One of the bandits puts into, I think it was even Wayne's character's head that, hey, there are some of us that want to see things go back to the way they were under the previous Maw Carver, where we were more of just secular, very violent, very psychopathic hedonists. We don't like this religious mumbo-jumbo that the new Maw Carver and Crash, her cultist leader, have, have introduced. And at, at that this- moment, he starts formulating a plan. It's generally a plan of revenge. He had already decided... This man needs to die, and it's just how is it going to happen? So what so, what put Philip over that line where he decided that Koresh has to die? Was it the killing of Leanne's brother? Which is pretty brutal. It, it was, was brutal, yeah. That Leanne is the daughter, by yeah. the way. It was when he found out that that was his daughter and the mother had been there and been killed. Gotcha. That was what put him over the line. Once it... This is not a nameless person on a farm. Didn't we establish that she may or may not have been killed? Like, she might have gotten away? Again, not to split hairs. It, it is possible, yes. It is highly unlikely. Have, oh, okay. There's no reason for him to believe she's not dead. That's fair. Okay, so, Wayne, I, I've got a question for you, and then I'm yeah. going to get back to the serendipity of games, all right? Because there, there's a really, out, I mean, like, English teacher level, I could not have written. Yeah, there's a long road, but there's yeah. a miraculous point. I could not have written this this Tom Joad moment any better than it occurred. All right, so Wayne, what was it? Because I was having a side conversation. I don't remember with whom, but what was it you said to Brodor's character right before the event? So 
Well, first of all, Philip made a mistake in what he did because he didn't think that he would, Rodor's character, Joe, would react the way he did. He should have, based on previous actions. His whole, Philip's whole plan about this was going to be wait for the right moment, sneak up, and stab him, not pull swords, charge in the middle of a room where people have guns. So So they're having this conversation. He comes in. uh Lee is convinced that gunfire is about to happen. Philip doesn't think it's imminent right now. He thinks it's going to happen tonight. And they're having this conversation back and forth with Joe there trying to get him to either agree that we need to get out of here and not be involved, or Philip's case of get him to join in and let's take this guy out. And what finally Lee makes a very good cogent point Mm -hmm. and Philip pulls the heartstrings and kind of plays him like, and what he specifically says, the line that does it, he goes on. He's like, this person is responsible for that farm dying. He's responsible for all of these things. And my daughter doesn't have a mother because of that man. So as soon as he says that, Lee's like, oh, shit. Right. <laughs> because you can, you, can hear in yeah. Joe, you can hear in Joe's brain, huzzah! You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. he just... No, I, you know what I, I, I caught more than a huzzah is within a world that was very, very black and white to you. Right. You, you hadn't seen all the gradations of gray. Right. This was an unbelievable evil that had mm-hmm. to be addressed. Right. And it, it, like proper judgment, it's done quickly. Right. And so what happens is Joe draws a cutlass that there's an absurd story behind. Uh, it's not absurd. It's amazing. And they're the best weapons in the game. And, yeah, apparently. And takes a swing at Koresh, this, this cult guy. Well, so. And hits him. He draw, No, I draw my sword. Yeah. And initiative goes. Right. Koresh got initiative. Koresh. Koresh Somebody shot his leg. I, With an arrow. That was one. That, so that was an NPC who okay. was on Team Motomar. So an NPC. Right. Yeah. Shoots so, him okay. the crossbow. So yeah. one of the NPCs of the bandits who wants to see Motomar rise to power to change sort of the, the tenor of these bandits shot him, shot, shot Koresh, shot this cult leader in the leg with an arrow, and basically it drops him to the ground. It renders that leg effectively useless. And what happens is with Joe right there bearing down on him, cutlass in hands, Koresh happens to have a double-barrel shotgun on him, which earlier in the game... Because they didn't want them running around the camp with firearms. Like two sessions earlier. Yeah, two sessions earlier. He had taken from Lee, and he fires both barrels at, I mean, three to six feet of range. And both shots, torso, torso. I have these location dice I'm using. It was amazing. (laughs) And the damage was... 14 and 12. Yeah, it was more than enough. Yeah, 10 destroys a location. I got hit for 26. <laughs> well, no, no, those separate hits. Okay. So it's a 14 and a 12. And right. if you want to know the math, your armor actually was doubled because of the fact that he was using shot, but you were only wearing... Base, a London Fog. Yeah, yeah basically. I have a heavy. It says on my character sheet. Yeah. Heavy. So he's basically wearing like like thick leather or something, which is only one point. So that's still a 10 point and a 12 point wound. Both of which are enough to kill. Either one of which would have killed. Yeah. And so both barrels blow out the torso and Joe is dead on the spot. And there are some quick side conversations about PC death. And I asked him, are you okay with this death? Do you want to cut a deal with me to keep your character alive, but lose something? And you said something that I thought was rather poignant. And this is where we get to the serendipity of the game. And so if you're all guys are wondering like, what the hell is the point of the story? Here it is. All right. You said to me, whether it was in that conversation or the one after people left, I don't remember, but you said to me, in my mind, this character has been dead since he shot the rat man in the head, which was two or three sessions earlier. Mm -hmm. And if he did not, and I think the way you put it to me was basically, if he did not find a way back to that moral true north, then he was just biting. He was going to die. He had fallen too deep into the world and he was going to die. And now here's what I find so neat about that moment is throughout the entire game, Joe is the, I'll use the phrase again, he is the, he's the moral true north of the party. 
He is the innocence of the party that I think the party is trying to protect because they realize he is the rarest creature in this world. (laughs) He's not the most depraved man. He's the only nice guy left. And so there's all these people trying to protect him and to insulate him from that. And probably the least helpful of the people trying to help him understand the darkness of the world is Lee, who has been probably putting some unintentionally putting some rather dark ideas in his head because he's trying to acclimatize it. And so when Joe finally dies, two things occur there. One is Joe is killed with Lee's gun. Mm -hmm. It is Lee's. So, I mean, we could take the gun as the symbolism of Lee's will or Lee's drive or whatever. And that's what finally ends Joe is that influence as unintentional as it mm-hmm. was it's not like you handed the gun to crash and passed him a note saying kill lee right right no the, it's thematically it was yeah. it was a thematic sort of thing but the other thing about it that struck me so deeply not as deeply as joe though no well <laughs> joe was a through and through but <laughs> but with the other thing that struck me about it at least the skin level you know my mine maybe stopped at the heart instead of continuing <laughs> on. you're wearing armor yeah was was that when joe dies it's ironically not during any of his naivete it's not during any of his innocence he's wandering around an incredibly dangerous world with no armor trusting everyone, unable to even comprehend that people manipulate and lie and play games. And when he is finally killed is the moment that he gives himself over to that darkness. The moment he gives in. Clear-headed understanding. Yeah, the moment he understands the evil, the evil takes him under. It's like being possessed by a demon. You look the demon in the eye and you sign the dotted line. The crazy thing is, if you, I'll tell you this as Game Master, if you had maintained your innocence, Koresh had no intention of killing anyone there. Mm-hmm. If you had maintained, if Joe had maintained, I shouldn't say you, if Joe had maintained that innocence, if Joe had kept that moral true north and said, no, we need to talk this through, work this through, or at least come up with a better plan, Joe would have walked out of there completely unscathed. Koresh, he, it was not a setup. He was not looking to assassinate you guys. He really did think, he was baptizing someone into the family. That was all that was on his mind. The only reason he had the other people with him, which he had not properly vetted because some of them were against him, was he thought that was his backup just to discourage you guys from doing exactly what happened. And what he miscalculated is that some of the people he brought as insurance were actually against him anyway, which he was, quite frankly, too crazy to even realize. Right. He was so baked in his own right that he had no idea. But that's, you know, what, what kind of gets in there. But it is the moment that you sign that dotted line with the devil that your life ends. And yet walking through the world as an innocent and unprotected man who should have been dead a hundred times over, nothing in the world touched you. And I, as a game master, didn't set out to do that. Right. I, that wasn't some fiat decision. There's so much that came together in that scene, too. He still died doing what he believed was right. He believed this man needs to die. Old Joe would have probably talked to him versus it, but he's still that man needs to die, and he went for it. When you look at the all the characters trying to protect him up to that point, it is Lee's gun, it is Philip's comments, right. words, and it is Motomar's history. All three people trying to protect him from something all led to that one moment. Yeah. You know, when I was on that radio show recently, Connections Radio Show, and I'll link it again in the show notes if you guys haven't listened to it. One of the things, because I it was, I tell you, radio goes by so quick. I'm used to podcasting where it's long form. You know, we're not interrupted by right. anything. Mm-hmm. And look, I've got control of the mics. So I can talk as long as I want. But to, we unplug Brodor half the time. You yeah. don't even know. Yeah, I know the stuff that's on the cutting room floor. <laughs> that's what's gold. <laughs> but it's, gold covered in. I don't even. I, I, I'm it's not gold right is in the shower. <laughs> gold is any peat on the floor, right? But I'm I'm not used to, to having to answer things so quickly and really under the gun because I'm. It's also not my show, right? I'm not moderating it. And one of the things that came up on that show was one that that is is not surprising for anyone who's tried to explain role playing games to the uninitiated. This is one you're going to hear pretty frequently, and I wasn't surprised to hear it. 
which is it's basically plain make believe. And that's what kids do. And everybody grows out of it. And they likened it. One of the hosts on this radio show likened it to they said, well, maybe I could see where this scratches an itch for actors that people that are into theater that maybe can't do as much theater as they like or whatever, that this is an outlet for them. And I and I I, I stopped her and said, no, I think you've got the wrong noun there. I said, I have seen some overlap between theaters and RPGs, but it's not nearly as strong as an, of an overlap as it is between writers or storytellers and RPGs. That people who have the desire to tell their own story, to explore these themes. I said, the thing about an actor is I'm not saying they don't create at all, but most of what they do is they interpret what's already created. The playwright, the script writer, they created. The actor, yes, I recognize they do have some creative latitude when they get up there. But for the most part, they are interpreting something that has already been written for them. But the writer, the storyteller, they're the ones that are creating whole cloth. And then the counter argument that I made to them, or counterpoint, that was an argument, but the counterpoint that I made to them was I said, you know, there are a lot of people that have an itch within them that they want to express into adulthood. But when I was a kid, I played in a lot of children's and youth sports groups. And I know a lot of people who went on and were not able to pursue that in high school or maybe didn't make the cut in college or sure as hell didn't make the cut to the NFL or NHL or MLB or, or whatever it is. And so they find a way to continue that by watching sports, by getting more involved, by going out and kicking the ball around with their kid or by playing a fantasy sports league. This is what role playing is like for the people that like to tell stories that they tell stories. And I said, you know, as much as we wish it was true, not everybody who loves telling stories gets to be Stephen King. And so there are people that have to find other outlets for it. And yes, self-publication is getting easier, but for many people, things like role-playing games represent that best outlet. And this, this right here is what I see as the crux of this episode. There's no advice, but I just want us for a moment to sit back and to smile a little bit and to celebrate a hobby that we exist in that is sufficiently complex, that is sufficiently full of so many competing minds and so many competing ideas or collaborating ideas. So I say competing, I don't mean at war. I mean competing is indifferent from one another. That these kinds of moments happen. And everybody's had them. If you've been gaming for a while, you've had that damn moment. Where something was really funny or really poignant or really made you think or was really unexpected or or just the dice did something that nobody saw coming, whatever it was. Every Skies of Glass game has that moment. Everyone I've been involved in has that one moment where you stop and just, wow. Right. And the last one, it was when Pat's character killed somebody for the first time. Mm-hmm. And we all just stopped and had that moment. And I am so thrilled. And for those of you who were like, wow, if, if you're, if it bugs you, it took for me 45 minutes to get here, you'll survive. But <laughs> if you're even surprised by it, you yeah. don't listen to the show. But, but, <laughs> okay, you're going to make me cough. <laughs> but I want you to think for a moment about how cool it is that we participate in a hobby where the kinds of things that people have to sit down and with pen and paper map out, or maybe they just tell a story and English teachers have to go back and pretend it was there six one half a dozen the other in my mind but these kinds of things just happen as part of what we do for fun that we you know we have these deeper powerful moments and that's one of the things if not the number one thing i love about this hobby so much is the fact that it surprises me i can be the game master you know theoretically the position of arbiter and storyteller and all this other shit and yet it still surprises me because I don't understand the stories I'm telling until they happen. Right. It's it's a remarkable formula of alchemy where you have the people at the table and their different perspectives and their different desires and what they want out of the story and those interactions bound together by the fate of the dice. Because those two dice, I could have easily been hit in the arm and the leg and survived. Yes. And been mangled and ruined. 
But the way those two dice hit, both landing on torso, point blank. You, we, I mean, we looked at each other, and there was that moment where we both realized, yeah, Joe's dead. Yeah, I mean, that's Just, when I asked you the one-point yep. question of, okay, he's using shot, so are you wearing armor? Because if you're wearing armor, there's a chance you'll survive this because it's going to be double. Yeah. And when you said a heavy coat, yeah. I'm like, okay, yeah. 4d6, all I got to do is hit, if you're wearing a heavy coat, a 12 or higher will be enough yeah. to kill. And, and, this and is, that's not going to be hard to do. This is a whole different episode because we as a party, as a group of players, have the challenge now of me bringing in a new character mm-hmm. that may yeah. or may not have already been introduced and then gelling with the party and dealing with the fallout of not having Joe anymore and having to incorporate. So not only do you have to does the story have to continue without a major character in the narrative, but now you have to have a new person yeah. that comes in that is also going to take spotlight. Yeah, I was just getting ready to ask you if you've thought of what your new character uh, is. It's already, already taken care of. It already is. Yeah, we've already sorted okay. that. Because yeah. <laughs> I need to start figuring out how I'm going to get him killed. <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking, like, like, I've been thinking all week long of, once the immediate danger has mm-hmm. has passed, I mean, we're in this this ist camp, this Carver right. clan, and I mean, that's the danger. And I think that when we get back to the camp, there's going to be even more of the danger. Uh, Lee predicts that the whole camp's going to break out into civil war as soon as we step into it. Yeah, I, I really didn't. As soon as we got captured by the ists, I really didn't see, because I Joe had just killed the rat man. Mm-hmm. I never saw Joe... I mean, every moment was literally in and out of character. Every moment was just the next moment. Yeah. I never saw him leaving that camp, mm. you know? Yeah. Not that it wasn't a possibility. I just, you know, in that headspace, he mm. was so lost at that point that this was just the world now. You know, right. this actually goes all the way back to my very first game ever, which was a Skies of Glass game where our characters got captured and ended up in Maul Carver's camp. That, that you know, crater camp. Yeah. Yeah. That crater across from the current Maul Carver. That's where the previous Maul Carver used to live. <laughs> I, as a player looked at that situation and thought, I don't see any way our characters get out of it. And I remember the feeling at that point, cause I'd never played a game before. I'd never gotten to that point. I saw no way the characters get out. And I had that kind of hopeless feeling around it. And I remember you know, as a player, I was trying to do everything I could to find a way to escape. Now, come full circle, all of this gaming up to now, the character ends up, this new character ends up right back in the same camp. Me as a player, I didn't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Never had that moment of, we're never going to get out of here. Right. Instead, it's, okay, I'm along for the ride. Mm-hmm. I'm going to see what happens. I'm not looking for those opportunities to escape like yeah. i was the first time just enjoying the story and it's Absolutely. that is for me as a player a full complete circle mm-hmm. from starting gaming to now what is very- being in the same situation and knowing how i react differently now than in my very first game what is very interesting about that story and i could be misinterpreting some of the other players actions because they, they're not here to defend themselves so i will tell you what their thoughts were because I know, but we had Pat and we had a couple other people and such that they played very traditional kinds of games. You know, it's like you are the hero. There is good. There is evil. We there is the path forward. Now there's challenge and, and opposition, and but there are set ways of overcoming this, and this is how we do. And we're all on the same page. Well, Dan and I we play different kind of games than that. More narrative, more story driven, more character driven, that sort of thing, and like. You know, we were saying earlier, Dan does not like to do the snidely whiplash evil villain. So when you have nuance to that, that means your whole format for dealing with opposition, that's out the window. It's gone. So I'm sitting there. We're playing this game. Those guys get captured, and I managed to have my character hide. And my whole thought was, man, this is going to be great because they're on the inside of the camp. They can get all kind of intelligence. They can find out more. They can interact more with the plot. They can do all this stuff. And then my character could work to get a plan going to free them. And, and it's like uh, I, Chad, sit here and see all these possibilities of all these different ways it can go. And then I, I kind of wake up, so to speak, and I look around the table and everyone except Dan and I 
is not happy. <laughs> they are displeased. Now, they're not saying anything, and I'm kind of reading their mind, right? Because I'm telling you what they're thinking. But they're not happy because it's like Wayne said. I felt hopeless. Th- the there's no hope. There, there's no way out. This is off format. We've been captured. Heroes don't get captured. These are the bad guys. We've lost. Our characters are going to die, and that's it. And then Dan and I are sitting here going, oh, my God, this is going to be like four games of awesome here. <laughs> yeah. but these guys are like, oh, geez, man, we'll, we'll, well play Shadow I'm, Run next or what? Actually, I have no idea what was in their mindset. I didn't have that history of gaming, so yeah. I, I had no presupposed notion. I'm just sitting in this situation looking around, and it's like, okay, all of our stuff's gone. Mm-hmm. I see no way out of this camp. Yeah, their equipment got taken away yeah. from them. So in like a and d game, you can't take the sword away from the magic sword. It's on my character sheet. Or if you do take it away, it's immediately outside the prison right? in a chest where the guards put all the impound stuff. Yes, the sleepy drunk guard. Yes, the sleepy drunk guard whose key is within... Hooking range yeah, of yes. the bars. Yes, his name is Cliche. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, I, was, I was going to make a Phytor joke. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but that is Cliche. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys for tuning in. I hope that many of you are checking out and enjoying the actual play. And if you're not, well, whatever. We're, <laughs> that's your definite loss. So we're going to keep on pushing with these episodes as we always have. So I. Hope you guys once again take a moment to enjoy that we have a hobby that allows for these kinds of moments. And beyond that, have a great week and great games, and we will catch you next time. Yeah. This has been a production of Fear the Boot, copyright 2017. Listeners are free to use this episode in any non-commercial endeavor so long as credit is provided to feartheboot.com. You can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com. Fear the Boot is also a member of the RPG Academy Network of Shows. You can find other great shows in this network at therpgacademy.com slash network.